Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, new podcast. I'm your host, Raghu Marcus, for another edition here, which I'm going to tell you about in a minute. I just came back from uh, uh, our uh, winter retreat, well, late fall retreat with Ramdas and Krishna Das. Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Trudy Goodman, Mirabai Bush, Saraswati Marcus, myself, Duncan Trussell. It was just, uh, it was another one of our big love fests. And, um, but the interesting thing, I have to mention this, the theme of the retreat was Finding the Beloved. Or as Ramdas returned the beloved into the inner candy jar. We were we we're trying to find the inner candy jar, and uh, and it's also uh, the other part of it was touching the compassionate heart. So it just so happened, of course, this uh, retreat followed the uh, mid-November. Second week November elections by a couple of weeks, and so that was certainly on people's mind, big time. So this was a a great uh, theme for the retreat, uh, and I think uh, we, we needed it. Most of us that were there that was needed it. Uh, we heard a lot of great responses. We talked about it. Uh, all of this, um, it was of course all shot. Uh, nice. Uh, Four camera, sh three camera shoot rather with great audio. So uh, we do these things, and and that's uh, some of what you eventually hear on on the podcast. Or go to ramdas.org, and it's presented there. It will be presented for download at the turn of the year, and I'll let you know about that. Uh, just uh, some really, really. Great content, as I said, in particular, relating to the tough times that uh, we are about to go through, I feel. So, um, I just want to mention a couple of other things. Uh, one main thing, of course, it's that time of year where we're looking for everybody to help support what we're doing here at the Foundation through Ramdas.org and BeHereNowNetwork.com, um, and that's where this podcast is emanating from, of course, iTunes as well. Uh, so we'd love for you, to, I know you're sick and tired of hearing these pitches, because uh, you're hearing it everywhere, and you're getting letters in your mail, who can you help? Uh, there's so many things to help in this world, uh, and important things, too. So we ask that you maybe divide some of that help, and uh, this is the way that we're able to continue to offer all of this uh, content and what Ramdas has been doing for all these years uh, for free. It's all eventually streamed. We do offer stuff as downloads, uh, sometimes at first, which are paid downloads, but eventually everything is available for free, and that's only because of... Uh, Everyone's support. So Amazon is a great way to support. Uh, go to Be Here Now Network. Be Here Now Network needs a little help, okay? 
we we've got all these great teachers and uh we're trying to get everybody honorariums uh so they can get off the road a little bit we're we've got uh, had to develop uh, certainly a, a, a enough of an infrastructure to do all the editing and all of the um, the back end work with the website and the presentations and making sure everybody's aware of it so uh, try Amazon. Uh, just go to BeHereNowNetwork.com, and of course, uh, you'll see the Amazon link that you can just bookmark. And then, it's still time to order your Christmas stuff through uh, for well, on in general, there's still time. You can all and and uh, we'd love for you to you know order through our portal. Uh, there's also donations, and just a $9 a month recurring donation would be a big deal to us. And also, uh, coming towards the end of the year, of course, uh, when people do make uh, tax-deductible no- donations, uh, that is something that, uh, if you have it in mind, it would help us, and then it's something that would help with your tax situation. Also, our store at ramdas.org has some beautiful new items. There's a great new... Chalisa CD, if you want to learn the Hanuman Chalisa from a, a lot of different melodies and renditions from Krishnas, Jai Utal, uh, Trevor Hall, which is a, a rarity, Trevor's first foray here doing a Chalisa, um, and uh, Nina Rao, I Do One, and there's a few, uh, you know, a bunch of other ones. Um, what else? There's these beautiful Be Here Now things. There's a new t-shirt and a charm with a silk wrist wrap that perfect gifts Absolutely perfect gifts. A Ramdas book bundle. So we're putting putting a a few different Ramdas books together uh, with a, a great price, and that's a, a perfect gift. There's a discount thing going on now, so that's another way for you to to help out. And and one of the other things you can get, and you can get this on Amazon. You can get it through our store. Is K K Shah's new book, Deva Bhumi, Abode of the Gods in India, which is uh, uh, just a super, super book. Of course, uh, K.K. is Ram Dass's, uh Indian brother and close friend, and he's our mentor and friend from back in the day. He translated for many, 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 many darshans with Maharaji. And uh, it's just his history of his family and some of these great Siddha saints that uh, lived up in that particular abode of the gods in that area. Just amazing how many... Um, realized beings, truly realized beings, uh, appeared there, in, including, of course, Nim Karoli Baba. Okay, onward and forward. Uh, and, and we do, honestly, you know, we go through this whole thing of uh, pitching to get people either, either to, you know, support us with donations or Amazon or there's different, uh, or books we're putting out or different events we're doing to support the events. And... Uh, truly, we do appreciate. There's a tremendous amount of support for Love Serve Remember Foundation. And uh, I just want to th- say thank you to everybody. Excuse my uh, little laryngitis. This this has been going on since I got to the retreat. So there's something in the air because a lot of people got this too. So, Okay, I got something great. This is Ram Dass. That Ramdas gave many of you know this, and uh, you, you, he he just gave these incredible lectures at Naropa when Naropa opened in 1974, and I, I was just looking through some of them 
by chance. And uh, I found one here that I just wanted to share. It's, it's just, it's such a core, core issue that we all have. It's around individual differences. You know, that we, we grow up, of course we grow up with uh, immediately getting identified with a separate self and we build an entire uh, character around that separate self, that character that is our reference to who we think we are. And uh, from, from that, uh, you start to uh, you, you look at other people and you're identifying those people based on your own uh, character development. So uh, as Ram Dass says in, this, uh, in the talk, if you, uh, well, in India, they say a pickpocket only sees pockets, right? So you're walking on the street and you're as he's just uh, wanting to get with the other sex the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever it is. And that's all you'll see in people. You don't see anything else. There's nothing but that. And you know, that's the most blatant example, but there's all the way down to uh, if you're, um, you got a thing going about how you look and your, your nose. I have a thing about my nose. I think my nose is too weirdly small. And I'm always looking, or I got curly hair. I don't like curly hair. So everything I see, any curl, if I see straight hair, Elvis hair, I love Elvis hair. I wish my hair was that way. So this this is is just chock full. Your whole day is centered around this uh, individual differences in yourselves and everybody else, and you develop these neurotic thought par- patterns. <clears throat> if and then you start going, well, if something was different, and every the world would be like way better, you know. Like uh, for me, if my father wasn't so damn angry, then I wouldn't have to be dealing with anger. So that's a, this is this whole other um, problematic centering of consciousness around thinking that if something was different, you would be different. And then, in the, and here's from Ramdas, in the course of, of Sadhana's spiritual awakening, our social perceptions keep changing as we do this spiritual work. And many of us are in the peculiar predicament that we have built an entire ego structure about who we are and how we function based on those, um, uh, these emotionally laden habits about individual differences. Right? It, it, that is, uh, it's something we talk about at these retreats. I just mentioned, I, we went into it a little bit about how to release from... Uh, habitual patterns which are so so difficult to become free of and yet so important uh and and we all see it when in everything the way we eat everything we have a pattern and it's very difficult to get free of it now he says we are experiencing realms of the universe and perceptions of ourselves and others that are totally inconsistent with these habits of thought about who we are but they're hard to give up because original habits that we that we they were so powerfully impressed on on us through external and inter- internal functioning, and um, so there's a lot of great stuff in this uh, in this talk around this. Um, <laughs> Ramdas says at one point, "We are each other's karmic predicament." <laughs> Love that, uh, and there it gets to a point where. Uh, 
and this is because everybody go, okay, well, if it's so hard to get through all of this stuff and it's so hard to get uh, rid of these habitual uh, patterns that we've developed, what the hell do we do? So uh, this is so in tune with uh, what Ramdas has talked about oh, forever. In the course of sadhana, spiritual awakening, our social perceptions keep changing and many of us are in the peculiar predicament that we have built an entire ego structure about who we are and how we function based on these emotionally laden habits about individual differences. And, and Ramdas, uh, when he counsels people in relationship, he talks about the triangle the two points with the, the two people are two, two points, and then the other point in the triangle is the guru or whatever it is that keeps you connected. I mean, as he says here, mantra, guru, uh, whatever practice. And then that leads us to the fact that unless we practice, it is very hard in any situation to have uh, this consciousness be called up automatically. So that you're not searching in the moment, you know, anger comes and uh, you, you just automatically go into that habitual pattern that, that you're identifying yourself. I know this very well, by the way, that you identify yourself as this kind of person. And you're kind of happy to get into it. It gives you power. So without a practice where automatically that, that third point immediately comes into create a kind of spaciousness from which you can leverage out of the habitual pattern. So, very important. Great, great talk on individual differences uh, from Ramdas here. And this is Ramdas here and now, and we'll see you next week. Most of us have grown up with uh a preoccupation with individual differences uh, because it's been very efficient but it's also been very neurotic so that um, we get very discriminating about individual differences and we call that being sophisticated and with our own individual differences we get totally preoccupied um, we come through childhood, most of us, there are exceptions in this room, but few of them. We come through childhood with some sense of inferiority, inadequacy, uh, impotence, incompetence, um, and that's kind of um, emotional, non-conceptual. It's just a feeling that comes from early child-rearing. We, we don't have to go into the dynamics of how that develops, but it just is a common thing. It almost is so pervasive that it looks almost like the feelings that come out of a sense of original sin. You want to do it from a religious point of view. 
But then what we do is we start to identify our individual differences with these feelings of inadequacy or badness or wrongness or feelings we've got to do good in order to be okay. Not that we start out by being okay, but that we're really kind of rotten, but if we do good things, we will be okay. And what we're doing is working against a negative core ego concept. And usually what we do is we find some individual difference in ourself that we can connect with this thing and thus blame it. I used to be overwhelmed when I was a psychotherapist by the fact that each person had her or his thing. And each person said, if it wasn't for this, it would be okay. If I didn't have a nose that was shaped this way, if my breasts were bigger or smaller, if I was having better orgasms, if I had come from a richer family, if I were a different color, if my parents hadn't broken up when I was young, if I hadn't fallen and gotten this scar when I was little, if I didn't have such big genitals, if I didn't have such small genitals, if my hair was a different color, if I had lived in a neighborhood where I had more kids to play with, if I had had a more compassionate father, everybody's got their thing. I may not have hit yours exactly, but I hit a good 40% of us right just now. And we get so emotionally preoccupied with the thing that's wrong with us that it starts to color all of the ways in which we see the world around us. So that if you are preoccupied with your nose, you then notice noses. And you notice everybody, and you notice all the successful people, particularly, and what nice noses they have. And so on. Now, um, in the course of sadhana, of spiritual journey, of awakening, of deepening of meditation, our social perceptions keep changing. And many of us, I would say almost most of us, are in the peculiar predicament that we have built a whole ego structure about who we are and how we function based on these tremendously emotionally labeled, laden habits about individual differences. But now we are experiencing realms of the universe and perceptions of ourselves and others that are totally inconsistent with these habits of thought about who we are. And the problem is we can't give up yet because they were so overlearned, those original habits. The image that I have, which I may have mentioned to you, the one of using yourself as 
your perceptual field is a microscope. It's like tuning from channel 7 to channel 6 on television, channel 5, channel 4. Because if you look at another person first, the way you are traditionally looking at them, you look at them in terms of, first of all, your own desire systems. So, as I've said before, if you're horny, you see who's makeable, who's a competitor for who's makeable, or who's irrelevant. That's your way of dividing the universe. Um, if you're an achiever or a power-oriented person, or you're localized in your third chakra, you look at who's beatable, or who's going to beat you out, or who you have more power than, and you see everybody in domains of power and realms of power and control. If you're a uh, physical gymnast, you look at people in terms of their body development. If you were a scientist of body development, you might be a uh, Sheldon somatotypist. And you would look at people in terms of whether they are endomorphs, mesomorphs, or ectomorphs. And you'd say there's a 377 or a 422 depending on whether the shoulders were big and the hips narrow, or the hips tall and thin, or short and fat, or whatever. If your preoccupation is color, you are aware of color. If your preoccupation is sex, sexual male or female, you are aware of that dimension, always in looking at another person. Is it a man or a woman I'm looking at? If you have a sexual preoccupation that is deviant from the culture, cultural norms, supposedly, you will be very aware of that dimension in everybody else. Now, if you flip the microscope one little flip, and you look a little deeper into another person, what you begin to see is personality. And then you see everybody as, that's a cheerful person, that person is very pleasant, that person seems depressed, and those of us that are preoccupied on the lower astral planes where our personalities exist, are, see only other people as personality. That person was nice to me. That's a nice, a nice woman, nice woman. She's sort of motherly. That's a psychological variable. And we look in psychological dimensions at other people. Okay, if you flip it once more into another astral plane, you will see astrological things, as I mentioned before. And then it, there are only 12 permutations in the world. And you see everybody as Leo or Aries and Sagittarius and, and that and when you look at another person, that's what you see. You say, I'm seeing a Leo. The person says, I'm not a Leo, my name is Fred. You say, well, that's what you think you are, but in fact you are a Leo. Because I see a Leo when I look. Right? That's the reality of that plane. If you go one more flip, what you see when you look at another person is another person in there looking back at you. Okay. You look into their eyes and you see somebody else. Are you in there? I'm here. Far out. And you look at your packaging and you see the packaging. The packaging involves the astral, all the individual differences. There's still somebody separate from you in there, 
but the individual differences are more like the veils or the packaging of the product. You can say, you in there, I'm in here. Here we are, we're two beings, two beings. Now, you take a relationship, say, to your, your mother or your father or your child, who you've got this long history of treating them, that's mother, that's father, that's, that's my son, that's my daughter, that's Janie, that's Mary Jane, little Mary Jane. Hello, little Mary Jane. And then you flip the microscope with Mary Jane, and suddenly there's another being inside Mary Jane. Who isn't Mary Jane at all? It's not not Mary Jane. It's not like it's it's Sarah Lou. It's not it's not anybody. It's just another being saying, "I'm in here too. I'm just like you." Now, what happens is for efficiency, so that we can sleepwalk through life, it is usually most efficient to get completely into individual differences and treat everybody just like they were yesterday. So if you were Mary Jane yesterday, you'll probably be Mary Jane today. And if I've treated you as somebody who's a slob, I might as well continue to treat you as a slob, because it's most likely if you were a slob yesterday, you'll be a slob today. That's known as efficiency of social relationships. Because if every time I meet another person, instead of being preoccupied with individual differences, I go through them and I see another being who's just like me, well, it's a whole new ball game every time we meet. Like, who are you this time? Oh, I'm still Mary Jane. Okay. We'll play that one out today. Now, it gets very, very uh, far out because, for example, in my relation with my father, my father is busy thinking he is my father. Right? He knows who he is. Right? He's a Republican. He's a man in his middle 70s. He's somebody who loves his family. He's a good man. Right? He owns this and that, etc. He likes the ball games. He's, he knows what is, who he is. The problem is that who that is, is dying, sooner or later. He's already beyond the actuarial age. And not only that, but if he is busy being who he is, and I'm then into the symbiotic role, in relation, the complementary role in relation to that, so I'm busy being his son. But the thing is, I'm 43, and it's funny about who, what a son is at 43. The limits of our relationship are very two-dimensional, they're very flat. But on the other hand, from where I'm sitting, he's just another being. And it just happens that in this lifetime, we took incarnations in which this particular round, he was incarnated, his karma was that I was his son, heavy karma. My karma was that he was my father, right? We are each other's karmic predicament, if you will. Right? But behind it all, his, you here, I'm here, far out. Now, if I say to him, are you here, I'm here, he doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Oh, you're talking that nut talk again. Right? And so my job isn't to come on to him at all. 
And the Gita makes that very clear in um, the third chapter. Let not the wise disturb the mind of the unwise in their work. Let him working with devotion show them the joy of good work. And those who are under the delusion of the forces of nature bind themselves to the work of these forces. Let not the man who sees this disturb the one who sees it not. My job isn't to say to him, look, you're not my father, really. Really? Really? Because he's got a birth certificate and the whole thing okay, from that reality, right? But the point is that my perception of him is, is another being who is in an incarnation in which he is totally identified with the thoughts that are connected with that incarnation. And he is so deeply identified with them that it is all totally real from how he's looking at it. So we will sit down together and we will talk father and son talk. But all the time I'm doing my mantra and I'm sitting in the place inside myself which is merely another plane. It's no better or worse than the one he's on. It's just a different one in which we are two beings who are doing this dance together. And what my mind is doing is creating a space which if he chooses, he is free to give up the limiting conditions of the role that he has been thinking he is. And what will happen to us sometimes is very far out. We will dock father and son talk, and then we'll keep sitting with one another. And then we'll run out of father and son talk, and we'll still be together. And because I feel so peaceful in that, while most people, if they are caught in their roles, get freaked when the role material runs out when you've run out of script line. But I'll sit with it, and pretty soon we will just be sitting together, just as if we were meditating in the Naropa Center. And we can't have any words about it, because the minute we come into concepts, we immediately go back into models. But we have left words behind, and we're just together. It turns out, I mean, if you want to go further mystically and do another flip, you get so you're looking at yourself when you look at somebody else. And it's all yourself dancing with yourself, making believe you're separate. But that's too far out for us, most of them. The point is that no matter what your relationship is with who, the same rules apply. It doesn't matter whether it's your parent or your child or your enemy, or your friend, or your therapy patient, or your therapist. You treat them all the same way. You treat them with compassion. You treat them with an appreciation of the fact that we are beings who are in incarnations. You quiet yourself. You center yourself. And then it's all possible. And in every relationship, it's all possible. That is, you become the environment in which the optimum growth is available to all the human beings who you come in contact with because you're not laying trips on everybody around you all the time. Because you're not sitting around judging, you should be this way. If you were a good father, you'd be, my child is going to be, I'm hoping that my, for my therapy patients that they will, I expected more from a therapist than, you hear all those places? 
I expect my husband to. See, the predicament is that everybody is doing just what they can do. Maharaji kept saying to me, Ramdas, don't you see it's all perfect? Everybody's being just who, everybody is a perfect, like when you go out in the woods and you see all the trees, you don't say, well, that tree isn't like that tree. I wish it were, you know, if that tree didn't bend like that, it would be a good tree. Somehow with trees, you can allow it. You can allow that each tree is just perfect the way it is. But when you get to people, if everybody isn't just like you think they ought to be, all hell breaks loose. You sit around judging and judging and judging and judging and having opinions. And there is a whole other way of looking at these gunas, these strands of the universe, interacting and seeing how in each individual manifestation, these strands have merged in such a way to lead to another perfect statement of the unstatable. So that you look at somebody who comes up and who's hung up and tight and angry and insecure and anxious and frightened, and you see the perfection of it, far up. And you give each incarnation space to manifest as it needs to manifest. You know, five years ago, I was busy trying to change my father. And now I have grown enough so I can leave him alone. I can just love him as he is. Now, the predicament we have about human relationships is recognizing that certain relationships have been laid on us by God karmically for this entire incarnation. You don't trade in your father. You don't trade in your child. You may try. Whether or not you trade in your husband or wife is an interesting issue in this culture at this moment. In every religion, when you married, you took on the same kind of karmic commitment that you did with a father or a mother or a child. It was till death do us part. We've converted that because when we got totally profane, we started to see it as merely a comfortable social arrangement. And when it didn't work, you changed it. And since that is the cultural format in which most of the marriages have taken place that exist in this room, at this point, you live within the culture you're dealing with. You didn't enter into the marriages consciously with an understanding till death do us part. Because you weren't conscious enough to, to make a vow like that. It's like making the bodhisattva vow. You can't enter into it until you know what you're doing. As you get more conscious, the nature of the contracts you enter into change considerably, and you enter in much more consciously to which contracts, how, and for how long. But at the moment, there are certain contractual relationships you're involved in, which are givens you're not going to get out of in this lifetime. And there are others that when you get finished with them, you can walk away and form new ones. And you can make the differentiation between those kinds of karmic commitments. But if you try to walk away from one prematurely, if you can look back with an astral eye, you will see these long threads going to these beings. Somebody who splits from home and, screw you, I'm leaving. Yeah. Maybe the work was done, but methinks it wasn't. There's a subtle flow of emotions that suggests that it wasn't quite all done. I'm leaving you and I'm taking the children. 
I finished my work with you. Yeah. Doesn't sound that way to me. Yeah. You may go away for a while, but that's okay. Later on, you'll be cooler and you'll understand. You can't go through the door as long as you leave unfulfilled karmic stuff behind you. Now, sometimes you walked away from somebody and then they die. You say, oh, I've blown it. Not necessarily. When you get totally centered, you can run through the relationship with them and bring it up to date consciously. Life and death isn't what it's about, as we'll talk about on Tuesday. Now, uh, historically, we have all been very deeply involved in a romantic image of ourselves. And that romanticizing is part of what would be called personality level. It's a low astral, and the whole astral planes, all of the, in fact, all of the planes are, are romantic. So that you may finish with the physical plane identity and you say, well, I know that I'm not Joe anymore. But who I am is the Messiah. See? But don't tell anybody just yet, because I'm not ready to manifest. What you find is that behind the physical plane, there are all these other planes in which you have also identities, and they all have more energy connected with them than this one. So when you get into one, it seems more real than this one did, and you get sucked in. And a lot of us, through various ways, have moved into other planes and gotten very much enamored of new identities and are still as much caught in individual differences as we were before. And the game always is to just keep letting go and letting go. And Maharaji's statement, sub-ek, 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 has been my saving thing. Sub-ek, there's only one. Now, you and I can sit around and, like angels on a head of a pin debate, discuss whether the one and the zero are the same thing, and whether the one is an illusion. But for our point of view, from where we start, pardon me, from the poverty position, uh, from where my work is reassuringly helped a lot by the one. And I remember a dialogue I had with Trungpa uh, in front of some television cameras in Vermont last year when Trungpa was teaching a seminar on Don Juan. And he said to me, Ramdas, what do you do about sorcerers? And I said, what sorcerers? I don't see any sorcerers. And he says, don't cop out. What do you do about sorcerers? I said, Trungpa, I don't notice all that stuff. I just notice God. There's all one. It's none of my business. I'm just aiming for the one. Now, he and I have been having a continuing dialogue, which is a very interesting one, about responsibility. And if I can say it clearly, 
if I deny the sorcerers and deny this physical plane with evil and good, deny the planes of evil and good and individual differences, I am caught in denial for fear of all of this stuff. And I am no less hung up than if I had been totally preoccupied with individual differences and failed to appreciate that behind it all lies the one. And what uh, my growth is, is that I am growing into being able to assume the responsibility in the realm of individual differences at the same moment keeping fully aware of the fact that one lies behind it all. And that's where that blend, that as Trungpa said to me one day, it's a very fine line. A very fine line between accepting the responsibility for individual differences. Like I say to people, and they get very aggravated with me, I say, they say, oh, thank you, you're wonderful, and you've done so much in my life. I said, I don't do anything. I'm just a, a pawn in the game. And they say, oh, come on, stop kidding me. Now, from where I'm sitting, that's the most real thing I can say. At another level, it is true that I am doing something or other. And if I deny one level and cling to another, I'm still caught. So when people say thank you, I say you're welcome. And when they say you didn't do it, I say you're right. Okay? okay? And you've got to live with all that stuff all at once. Now, you begin to notice as you start to begin to be a connoisseur of the law, of the universe, of the divine law, that nothing seems to be happening by chance anymore. That who you meet in the supermarket, who you meet in the street, isn't random. Who you end up going to bed with isn't random, no matter even if you've gotten to the philosophy where you think it is. All of it is lawfully working out each individual's karma. And then you say, my God, what a computer system must be behind this. See? And you read in the Hasid literature that not a leaf turns, but that God does not know. You think, far out. A leaf turning? Like you sit and the wind blows and the leaves roll by and you think somebody planned all that? Far out. That's total paranoia. See? <laughs> Well, that's what law is. It's total paranoia. I don't mean it. Right, okay. And as I said before, that when you start to get angry at people, like when at this point, it's pretty good now, when somebody really infuriates me, I get infuriated. I roar, and I'm really fierce these days. And as I'm doing my fierce thing, and the adrenaline's pumping, and I'm just getting into my roar, I'm going to manifest my, you know, other form. The cosmic humor of the predicament starts to sneak in. Got you again, because you only get angry when somebody gets to what in you? They get to a model you've got going about how you think it ought to be. 
And since your game of awakening is to ferret out those places in you where you're clinging to models of this or that, what can, more can you ask for than that somebody would come along to wake you up again? And if they can get you furious, isn't that nice of them? Isn't that a compassionate act? Not necessarily conscious compassion on their part, but in terms of your relation to your guru who sent the person, who is the person, what a compassionate act to really get me bugged. Thank you. Now, how long does it take you in that sequence of little mind trips, mind moments, before you go from the which is individual differences level, to here I am in an incarnation going to reestablishing the place in you where far out, look at the And what's fun is when you're playing with other beings called satsang or sangha, who are equally conscious and working on themselves, and you go, and the other person goes, and you're both looking at each other saying, far out, look at this one. And that's why it gets very heady to hang around satsang because there is an assumption that everybody's on the trip together and we're really helping each other wake up and we get caught in these incredible melodramas but there is behind it all there is the cosmic joke and that's why having this other connection whether to the guru or to the mantra or whatever it is that you have a connection it's that third thing that keeps you from getting lost in the two all the time so it's like when you're making love, keep the guru in the room. There's always a third consciousness, just a pure, non-judgmental, totally compassionate, totally loving consciousness present, always, every way you are, everything you're doing. You just keep running your life off against that until pretty soon you've just incorporated that whole philosophy, that whole spacious, present, calm, ah in which ongoing is pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and sorrow.